Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Food and Drug Administration approved a new mRNA COVID-19 vaccine earlier this month, and now those six months and older are encouraged to get the shot. But this latest vaccine rollout is hitting snags due to health insurance confusion. Also looming in the future is a possible government shutdown, which could affect many federal programs and workplaces in Native America. We'll get you updated on the latest on COVID-19 and a possible government shutdown right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. A First Nation in British Columbia says it has found nearly 160 child deaths at four facilities in the province. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, most of the deaths occurred at a hospital. The probe by the Stalo Nation in British Columbia focused on unmarked graves and missing children going back to the 1860s. But representatives of the First Nation and its research and resource management center say the work is only beginning. So far, obstacles have been the lack of access to information from Ottawa, as well as religious institutions that were linked to residential schools. The research, using ground-penetrating radar, archives, and fieldwork, was into three residential schools, cemeteries, and a First Nation hospital. Most of the children died of diseases such as tuberculosis, some from accidents. Amber Kostachenko is a researcher and the project manager. One child died uh, because they were jumped on by another student. Another child was reported to have, have hit their head against the bed under unknown circumstances. And another was reported to have broken their spine while jumping rope. The institutions included the St. Mary's Residential School, the Kokolitsa Industrial Institute, and the Kokolitsa Hospital, all three in British Columbia's Fraser Valley. And the fourth was the All Hallows School in Yale, B.C., Kostachenko says her team is still gathering information and has only accessed about half of the 70,000 documents they need. One of the lead researchers also says interviews with survivors suggested many atrocities committed against children, including sexual assault, starvation and secret burials. Some survivors allege that the St. Mary's School was a place of punishment and starvation, and later when it moved to a second location, a place of pedophilia. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. For years, it was extremely difficult to find meals like bison pot roast or an elk taco at a restaurant. Yet Indigenous cuisine has been in the Americas for centuries. The Mountain West News Bureau's Emma Vandernindy joined a chef in a Denver community kitchen to see her approach to the cuisine. Chef Andrea Murdoch is busy in the kitchen. She's baking her light blue sugar cookies with the help of some volunteer chefs. They're like blue. Yeah, they stay blue. It's awesome. They do? Yeah. That color is made from Ute Mountain Ute cornmeal from Southwest Colorado. Blue cornmeal is something that's very um, specific to the Four Corners region of the U.S. Like you will not find this easily out on the West Coast, out on the East Coast. And this isn't the first time she's used unique ingredients. I source locally and indigenously to support those economies. Kroger doesn't need my money. It all started when Murdoch expanded Four Directions Cuisine, her food business. She wanted to create South American cuisine. And through her research, she found that ingredients representative of the culture were pre-colonial like rabbit, bison, or other foods that existed in the Americas before colonizers arrived. Along with sourcing food from local and indigenous farmers, she forages around her for flowers and grasses, praying to the weather god Iapa for rain. As she cooks, she taps into what she calls her sixth sense and connects with plants and animals that are seen as relatives in her culture. There's an element of listening to the ingredients and understanding how you're going to honor them best. Indigenous cuisine, like Murdoch's, has recently grown in popularity. 
with many restaurants opening in cities like Minneapolis and Seattle. And for the second year in a row, a native chef won a James Beard Award, almost like the Oscars for cooking. But it wasn't always this way, and there's still room to grow. We find food from all over the world in our amazing cities, and very seldom do we find food of where we happen to be standing that represents the land and the indigenous communities and cultures. That's Sean Sherman, head chef of Awamni in Minnesota, and a multi-James Beard Award winner. And we should really be focused on what's the true food of North America, and you can't understand North American food unless you bring the indigenous perspective into it. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. It's officially fall. New season, new COVID vaccine. An updated mRNA COVID-19 vaccine has rolled out after approval by the Food and Drug Administration earlier this month. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a recommendation for everyone six months of age and older to get vaccinated. In this hour, we'll chat with medical professionals about the latest trends with COVID infections, COVID variants, and vaccines, and clear up confusion over insurance coverage for COVID vaccination. Then we'll take the last segment of the show to talk about the possibility of a government shutdown and what that could mean for federal programs and employees across Native America. If you're getting ready for a government shutdown, call in, tell us about it, how it could affect you. We're at 1-800-996-2848. If you have questions about COVID-19 or the new vaccine, give us a call. Or if you've already gotten the shot, let us know, 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's go ahead now and meet our guests. Joining us from Anchorage, Alaska is Dr. Matthew Clark. He's the Chief Medical Officer for the Alaska Area Native Health Service and Chair of the Indian Health Service National Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. Dr. Clark, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invite. Joining us from Lac de Flambeau, Wisconsin, is Dr. Rebecca St. Germain. She's the evaluator for the Great Lakes Intertribal Epidemiology Center and program director for the Tribal Epidemiology Center Public Health Infrastructure. She's Lacoudere. Dr. St. Germain, welcome to you as well. I appreciate spending this time this morning with you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And joining us from Sagatuck, Michigan, is Stacy Bolin. She's the Chief Executive Officer of the National Indian Health Board. 
She's also a citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. Stacy, you've been here before. Welcome back also. Ani, it is a pleasure. Miigwech for having us here. Can't wait to be part of this conversation. Well, let's go ahead and get this conversation rolling. Dr. Clark, uh, this new COVID vaccine, what do we need to know about it? So um, one thing that's important to recognize is that the new vaccine um, is available for all persons ages six months and older, as you mentioned. And regardless of previous vaccination status is recommended uh, for all persons ages six months and older. Uh, the new vaccine was formulated based on a subvariant of the Omicron uh, variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, that's the XBB15 uh, subvariant. And um, the vaccine has been found to be effective not only against that subvariant, but also against currently circulating variants. And uh, this is what's known as a monovalent vaccine. It's unlike the, the previous vaccine that contained both a variant strain as well as the original Wuhan strain of the virus. Um, and uh, the monovalent vaccine is, uh, it, it is specifically formulated to protect against serious uh, infections that can lead to hospitalization or death. Um, and so for that reason, um, not only for our older uh, folks and for, for young children, but, but for the general population, it's recommended that, uh, that everyone uh, get their COVID-19 COVID monovalent vaccine this year. So is this the first monovalent COVID vaccine that we've had go to market so far? It is not. The, the original vaccine back in December of 2020 um, and subsequent booster doses um, were based on the original Wuhan strain of the virus. Um, we moved into a bivalent vaccine that included an Omicron subvariant about a year and a half ago. Um, and so this is a transition back to a monovalent uh, vaccine, uh, but specifically uh, targeting uh, currently circulating variants. All right. And how confident are you that this is going to, to prevent most people from getting COVID? I know no vaccine is 100%, right? No vaccine is 100% protective. Um, and I really want to stress the fact that the main goal of vaccination is to prevent serious infection, those, that, those infections that lead to hospitalization and death. So, um, you know, unlike in the early stages of the COVID vaccine campaign, uh, where, you know, one of the main goals was to prevent spread of the virus and to prevent infection, um, you know, the, the main focus now is preventing serious infection. That's not to say that vaccination is not also effective in preventing infection and preventing spread, but, but again, the main goal is to prevent serious infection. All right. And not everybody that listens to our show is an IHS patient or a client, but do you know there at the Indian Health Service, are there enough doses for everyone who needs the shot? Certainly. So let me speak a little bit to how folks access the vaccine, both uh, with IHS and, and frankly, outside of IHS. So there is uh, an ample supply of vaccine nationwide to ensure that everyone who's eligible and interested uh, can can get a COVID monovalent vaccine. Um, all uh, American Indian Alaska Native children, so up to your 19th birthday, um, are eligible to receive the vaccine through the Vaccines for Children program um, at our IHS facilities and frankly at uh, non-IHS community centers and and, um, and providers' offices. 
Uh, for adults, uh, the vaccine is available through a variety of mechanisms in IHS, our federal sites, and our participating tribal sites that participate in the IHS Pharmaceutical Prime Vendor can order the vaccine uh, through, that, uh, through that Pharmaceutical Prime Vendor, um, and, and then those uh, sites administer the vaccine at no cost to eligible patients. Uh, there is also a program that's uh, new this year and, and will be around through the end of next year. It's called the CDC's Bridge Access Program. And uh, federal travel and urban sites as well as non-IHS sites are eligible to uh, participate in that Bridge Access Program uh, so that uh, individuals who um, may not have another means of um, paying for vaccine uh, can re uh, who are adults can receive the vaccine uh, for free through the bridge access program and then of course for uh, non IHS sites uh, folks should be able to access the vaccine at commercial pharmacies at their provider's office at community uh, centers uh, that provide normally provide vaccination um, and because the vaccine is covered by um, uh, like all other ACIP-recommended vaccines by commercial insurance, if they have commercial insurance, then they should be able to receive the vaccine at no cost as well. All right, but we are hearing reports uh, of people being told with insurance that there's still a cost, $100, I believe, for Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, is that just a kink, like a billing issue that they're hoping to work out? Because the, the vaccine is supposed to be available to all Americans at no cost, right? So, um, well, let, let me uh, clarify that. So the vaccine is available at no cost through the, through the programs that I mentioned. All ACIP recommended vaccines are required under the Affordable Care Act to be provided, the vaccine itself at no cost um, when you have a, a, an insurance plan. Now, if you don't have an insurance plan um, and you are not able to access the vaccine through your IHS facility, as I just described, and, and of course, all of our facilities will be making the vaccine available, but if you're seeking the vaccine outside of our system and don't have insurance, then you would want to try and identify one of these locations that is enrolled with the CDC's Bridge Access Program. This is for adults um, to obtain the vaccine at no cost. For children, again, all American Indian Alaska Native children are covered by the Vaccines for Children Program. And so whether or not they receive their vaccine from IHS or another provider, um, they should be able to receive that vaccine at no cost. All right. All right. Um, and for IHS facilities, other tribal facilities, will folks need an appointment to get the vaccine or can they just walk in? You know, that varies from facility to facility. Um, our goal is to make access as seamless as possible for COVID vaccination, just as we've done throughout the COVID vaccine campaign. Um, and so what I uh, typically recommend is that folks reach out to the provider uh, or facility that they normally um, uh, see, a, uh, uh, see a provider or receive their vaccines from and uh, determine what their access options are. Uh, I can say for our federal facilities, IHS is very strongly advocating uh, to make access to these vaccines as seamless as possible. And Dr. Clark, for folks that maybe haven't had a COVID vaccine yet, or maybe they skipped one of the boosters or something like that, do they need to be concerned or can they just walk in and get this new vaccine regardless? So the monovalent vaccine for uh, persons ages five years and older who have a normal immune system, it's a single dose regardless of whether or not you've been previously vaccinated. 
Uh, for, for younger children, the number of doses varies depending on prior vaccination status and age. And I, I can go into details about that if you like, but um, the, those, are, um, uh, those vary depending also on which formulation of the vaccine you receive, so the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine for children. Uh, but uh, to simplify things for all persons ages five and older have a normal immune system, it's a single dose whether you've been vaccinated or not before with the COVID vaccine. For people with a, a weakened immune system, um, there is a recommendation for addis additional dosing. And that's something that I usually recommend that those individuals discuss with their individual provider. All right. And Dr. Clark, what about testing there at health clinics or perhaps the, the home tests that people can buy for themselves or access? Uh, do you still recommend those? I do, actually. So um, as you may have heard, the Biden administration recently announced um, a program, again, where in individuals can order up to four uh, at-home COVID tests uh, per household. Um, and also, um, IHS makes COVID testing available at our federal direct care sites. And I believe many of our travel, uh, travelly operated IHS clinics do the same. Uh, so there are a number of different uh, ways that, um, you know, testing is available to, to folks. And, you know, testing is appropriate um, under circumstances where someone may have been exposed to someone known to have tested positive um, and or someone who is symptomatic with the typical symptoms of COVID illness. So those would be, you know, respiratory symptoms, runny nose, sore throat, cough, and the like, and, uh, and sometimes fever as well. Uh, so there are, um, you know, definitely recommendations for testing in, in uh, both of those circumstances. Dr. Clark, really appreciate these timely updates you're providing us. Anyone with questions about COVID, give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE, back after this short break. One year has passed since Pope Francis apologized for past abuses committed at residential schools and the church's attempts to eradicate indigenous culture in Canada. We'll assess the weight of that apology and what the effect has been one year later on the next Native America Calling. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA awards ceremony. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking with medical experts about the new mRNA COVID-19 vaccine. Have you already gotten yours? Or maybe you're having trouble accessing the vaccine where you live? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848 if you have any questions or concerns. That number is also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's move on to our second guest, Dr. Rebecca St. Germain, who is with the Great Lakes Intertribal Epidemiology Center. And Dr. St. Germain, again, thank you for joining us. And these COVID vaccines, every time a new one is, uh, is, is made available to the public, there's a, a rollout period. And uh, over the last few years, I think some of these rollouts have been a little bit more successful than others, have been a little bit smoother. 
Uh, how have previous vaccine rollouts gone in your area, Dr. St. Germain? Thank you for that question, because actually I have a success story that happened when we were under state of emergency on our reservation up in northern Wisconsin. Um, it happened very quickly on an, the last week of March when we went under tribal shutdown, shelter at home. Many recommendations were delivered through the tribal health clinic and, and primarily through the tribal government itself. The rollout of vaccines happened only at the request, and I have to emphasize the power of tribal governments coming together on a national scale to, to tell, to explain, to demonstrate, to, to push our national leaders to get those vaccines out to tribal communities on rural reservations. The impact of this was um, in northern areas, northern reservations, we do not have critical access to hospitals, to large health communities. So even just the ability to have vaccines in that amount that can take care of our population was paramount. We were at a crisis level. We were at various, uh, various meetings with the public health, the county, uh, the state, national level, federal levels uh, to make sure that we could treat and help our patients as they came in. Um, because for the longest period of time, our county did not go positive, but when it did, it went through our reservation at an exponential level. And we were actually afraid that the local hospital could not contain the amount of clients that would come through there if our reservation really um, went into a surge um, state. So thankfully with our tribal government our tribal councils coming together and voicing those urgency messages at the at the national and federal level. Um, we got a vaccine delivered, but in my mind, I will never forget the picture of watching um, two federal pharmacists helicopter in the vaccines for a drop. Mm -hmm. And those vaccines, yes, it was just amazing because, you know, when the tribes petitioned to have access to the national stockpile, we were denied because Native American nations did not have access to it. And I know um, Deb Helen was working on that to get tribal access to the national stockpile for vaccines. You know, Native communities, our relatives are, are survivors of many large-scale crisis events in health. When I was younger, I used to listen to stories. My mother would tell me about what happened in 1918 when the flu came through our northern areas up there, up here in Wisconsin, and how, how they had to go into the woods, you know, deeper into the woods and what we now call, you know, it's isolation. But some of the preventative measures that um, that they did, you know, boiling clothing, you know, burning things after someone was ill. Um, they did their best, you know, to try to contain it. And at times we had teachings, they said, to recognize if this was white man's illness, we might need that white man's medicine. So some went that way. But again, like I said, we used and relied on some of our traditional practices for improving health, for keeping us alive, for going into, like I said, the woods. You know, there's 
there's great hope, but the, the vaccines came at a critical time for our people. And um, I do have a few more points I would like to make going back with the doctor, but okay. we can briefly we can though, return Doctor, to that. I, I just would like to ask briefly though, why were Native Americans excluded from that national stockpile that you mentioned earlier? You know, I'd like to say it's more of an oversight, but I believe it's something that the federal government has not given enough consideration to, that we should have that access working through federal agencies, yes, that support our mission for Indian Native sovereignty, tribal government sovereignty. I believe it's just something that has never been addressed, that tribal government should have that sovereign access to something that is so readily available. We shouldn't have to go through, you know, the various um, the various pleadings that we had to do. All right, all right. Please, Dr. St. Germain, the other points you wanted to make? I was actually going to talk about um, tribal programming that was so critical during that time when tribes were under state of emergency due to COVID. You know, it, it seems, I think, every month the, um, the, the um, continuous um, sequence of federal declarations, you know, that we are still under a public health emergency. Sometimes I feel that that message is not delivered adequately to our tribal governments, our sovereign governments. We need to be able to come and voice our needs and concerns when those declarations are delivered out through, you know, the CDC. And also at the highest level through our presidential office, that needs those kinds of in, inter, interventions. Okay. We need to have, yeah, we need to have those interventions where we can come to the same table and be able to speak at the same level, you know, right. whether it means being with the World Health Organization, um, you know, the ASPR, that's the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. Those are critical, critical information emergency measures that the nation took when COVID became a world-dominant crisis. Right. And okay, Dr. St. Germain, so now here we are. It's 2023. There's a new vaccine available. I know definitely cases of COVID are going up. I know in my family, a few people have gotten sick, but it seems like definitely the worst is passed. Uh, most of the cases I come across are mild. I very rarely in public now see people wearing masks. I don't see a whole lot of concern, a whole lot of worry. But so it begs the question, I mean, where are we at right now in the overall arc of the pandemic, or now it's no longer considered a pandemic, which this overall experience that began, this ordeal that began more than three years ago, where are we at and how serious is it? I mean, how concerned do we have to be about COVID right now, today, September 2023? How big a risk? Well, as you know, CDC um, updates, and we usually get updates like every two weeks for a two-week period, and that can vary. You know, three weeks ago, we were at, you know, just in the teens, but in the last two weeks, we've hit 22, you know, 26%. 
and the variant we're seeing is the EG, EG5. And Dr. Clark mentioned the XBB, um, but in Michigan, I was kind of kind of um, amused to see this one pop up, but the BA 2.86 in Michigan. And of course, these are all Omicron. Omicron, depending on the individual's immune system, if they've been previously exposed or if they've had enough booster shots, chances are, as Dr. Clark said, our main concern is preventing serious infection, serious illness where, you know, they're hospitalized. So have we had many reports of that? Not at this point. It's still less than 10%. Um, okay. And, but that's just the beginning. And I know on university campuses, we are seeing an uptick in um, respiratory infection. So. Okay. And then for folks who might be thinking to themselves, you know, look, I'm tired of these vaccines. I'm tired of having to go in and get these shots. I've gotten COVID maybe once, maybe twice. It, it wasn't that bad. It, it wasn't a severe illness. I don't, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I don't want to get any more shots. Dr. St. Germain, what do you want to tell that person? I would still tell them, like I've told community residents around me, even my own family members, you still need to get the booster shot especially if you have asthma, if you have respiratory conditions, if you have um, other chronic conditions such as diabetes, pregnancy, weakened immune system due to other infections, it still has to be a preventative measure that we do. It's something you don't have a choice with. Um, It's something you can't prevent. You know, we did a the nation did a great job when we were masking and washing hands and keeping vigilant that way. Um, that direct exposure really was evident in, in community measures that we were keeping track of, you know, during our, our um, testing and also our contact tracing. So I know do, it's effective. Do you recommend that people still wear masks this fall? I, rem- I do recommend masking in large crowds. You know, there's various reasons why, and we've discussed that. But still, you know, the the best thing you can do is mask. Yes. All right. And, and Dr. St. Germain, your epidemiology center, uh, what have you folks learned? I mean, earlier you described that, that good success there when it was first rolled out yes. there in the community. And what have you folks learned uh, now that we're more than three years in and going forward to, to make us all safer and to ensure that these additional vaccine rollouts and other measures are, are, are as successful going forward? I think we have to be vigilant and keep, keep um, informed. The best, um, the best source that I used three years ago was actually attending the ASPR that was the strategic preparedness and response webinars, you know, because right after that we would have meetings with the CDC and the IHS. And I was able to get that information about the vaccines, when they were available, who they were, who they were most um, uh, usable for. And I had that information. So keeping, keeping tabs on information that is helpful for you, even as a private citizen, tribal member, um, informed individual. And the next thing is, is keeping, keeping up to date 
if we're a director and we work for tribes, you know, keeping those um, operations, critical, critical operations manuals updated, you know, well, that's kind of what caught us off guard originally is our emergency operations programs. We never expected this to go so quickly and shut down. It, you know, when, when departments shut down, it was very hard to navigate through all the connections that tribes, tribal governments possess. You know, it's not just one department. Many people are not aware of the enormity and complexity of tribal governments. Mm-hmm. And so, so putting that um, incident commander, putting the emergency directors in place, public safety, judicial system, where where are we prepared to house? You know, our frontline workers, our our firemen, our policemen, are the people that have to be um, available at, at all times and keep them healthy. So many tribes, we had to daycare. For example, we actually put up a daycare that would be able to handle um, overnights if our emergency workers were headed into long shifts. Um, but so housing departments really took really took um, careful consideration of how much funding we had, and that was an ask that we had at the national level as well. All right. Thank you, Dr. St. Germain. And, and I want to go back to, to Dr. Clark and Dr. Larker, what about other illnesses or other health issues that we need, need to be mindful of this fall? And what about just non-COVID related flu or just other types of flu shots? Should we be thinking about those issues as well? Certainly, I appreciate that question. So, you know, this is a unique uh, fall uh, respiratory viral season because it's the first time ever um, that we have available not only seasonal influenza vaccine and COVID vaccine, but also a vaccine for respiratory syncytial virus, which is a, a common uh, viral respiratory illness, typically in the fall and winter, like flu and, and, uh, and even COVID to some extent, um, which causes a significant amount of illness, both in infants and in older people. Um, it's the number one cause of hospitalization of infants in the United States. Um, so we really have a unique opportunity this year uh, to take advantage of these newly available vaccines uh, to prevent uh, serious illness, including hospitalization and death, now from three vaccine-preventable viral respiratory illnesses. And uh, for folks sitting here listening to the show and, and, and taking all this information in, whether or not uh, they need a flu shot or, or where to get the uh, COVID vaccine, where's the best place for information online? What website or what resource do you recommend, Dr. Clark? Well, for folks who, uh, who are so inclined and who have internet access, I think uh, the CDC website is an excellent place to get up-to-date information um, regarding eligibility, dosing, uh, those types of things related to the fall and winter respiratory viral vaccines. Um, for those who don't have access or prefer to talk to someone, um, I think talking to your local healthcare provider, uh, to your public health nursing staff, uh, to your travel nursing staff and public health staff, I think those are all excellent resources uh, to get the most up-to-date information. All right. And when we come back from break, Dr. Clark, we're going to talk about this looming federal shutdown. But before we do, just quick question going into break here. If there is a government shutdown next week, uh, do you 
foresee any impact with regard to these vaccine rollouts that we're talking about today? Uh, as regards Indian Health Service, I do not. So, um, you know, IHS is going to remain open regardless of uh, whether or not there's a government shutdown and uh, vaccines are currently available for ordering um, through our pharmaceutical prime vendor. Um, and I anticipate that folks should continue to have access to COVID vaccines uh, regardless of uh, congressional action on the 2024 budget. All right. Listeners, I encourage you, if you have a question about the vaccine, if you've got a question about COVID or any other fall-related health questions regarding flu season or some of these other concerns, we've got open phone lines right now. We're waiting for your call, 1-800-996-2848. Or maybe you're just kind of burned out on talking about COVID and you kind of want to move on with things. You know what? I'd love to hear your perspective as well. Give us a call. 1-800-996-2848. We're going to talk about this looming federal shutdown on the other side of this break. Please stay with us. Attention all ranchers, farmers, and conservationists. You can join the Indian Nation Conservation Alliance at their three-day annual meeting in Las Vegas starting October 24th to strategize for a sustainable future. Topics include tribal farming and ranching issues, tribal forestry programs, and more, all to strengthen tribal sovereignty through conservation. The session will also be live-streamed online. More info, including registration at inca-tcd.org who support this show. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're changing our focus in this last segment of the show to talk about the possibilities of a government shutdown at the end of this week. How will you be affected if the federal government shuts down? Are you preparing for a government shutdown right now? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. And to talk more about the possibility of a federal government shutdown, Let's bring our third guest into the conversation now, Stacy Bolin, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the National Indian Health Board. Stacy, thank you again for joining us. And those words, government shutdown, it's always such a cause for alarm. If it does happen, October 1st, where might people see the immediate impact? Well, first of all, Ani Buju and Hello, my native name is Turtle Woman, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, McGwitch, for this opportunity. Well, in terms of the National Indian Health Board, our focus is on health and public health, um, health uh, status and delivery uh, quality of services for our peoples. And I think that um, we are very, very fortunate that through years of advocacy, support from President Biden, tribal leaders across the country, tribal organizations coming together, we finally won advanced appropriations for the Indian Health Service at the end of 2022. So this time, many of the services and uh, budgetary line items of the Indian Health Service will not shut down because of the work all of us did together to get advanced appropriations. Now, does that mean it's solved? No, it's not solved. There will still be impacts on some of the line items. Um, and I have more to say about that, but I, <laughs> will, uh, I will hesitate. Okay, but what we know is that instead of having to wait for that funding every year, it means that there's this appropriation. Uh, it's, it's a guarantee, right? That money's, it's in the, it's in the books. 
So IHS yep. has that budget. It's firmed up. Um, Stacy, we just had a caller and they have a question and I'm hoping you can help us answer it. If there is a government shutdown, uh, how could that impact supplemental nutrition assistance program SNAP and also TANF benefits, temporary assistance for needy families? I know those programs are, are widely utilized in some native communities. Do you see a risk there that folks might not be able to access those benefits? I, I am not exactly sure, but I've got staff who are experts on these things listening on the call, and they're going to give me the answer. So <laughs> All right. If you can wait, I'll yeah. give you the answer. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Um, one, one issue, you know, I remember the last federal shutdown. It was about five years ago, back in, in December of 2018, and that lasted for 35 days. And I just remember, you know, that was a long time. And at the time, my wife, she was working for BIA and she was out of work for a long time. It, it, do you think we're facing a similar ordeal like that now, Stacy? A long, a prolonged shutdown, possibly more than a month if it happens. I don't. I think that if I knew the answer to that question, I would be very, very wealthy person. Um, and I am not. But I would guess that there's a lot of incentive to get this done. I think there is. Um, there are challenges. Obviously, we've all been watching what's happening in the House of Representatives. Um, that the the leadership is going to have to overcome uh, for the in the House, and nobody can predict what exactly that will mean or how long that will last. Let us let us uh, lay tobacco and ask the Creator for intervention that it doesn't last a month because it'll be extremely damaging to our people and all Americans if if that is the case, all vulnerable Americans. Okay. Um, I do I do think that a couple of points I'd like to make. Um, the special diabetes program for Indians, for example, that's going to expire on September 30th. That program is after the childhood vaccination program. CDC calls the special diabetes program for Indians the most successful public health program in the United States. Not the most successful program for American Indians, Alaska Natives. The most successful public health program, period, after childhood vaccination. It's a minuscule investment for, um, uh, toward the trust obligation for our people's health, and yet we've saved uh, at least $520 million over 10 years from having a 54% decline in end-stage renal disease because of the impact of the Special Diabetes Program for Indians. So, you know, there are vulnerabilities that would not become immediately obvious that will have a very, very devastating impact on our folks. Um, and we're fighting as hard as we can to, you know, for, for, for what we can do to together uh, protect Indian health in these rescissions and places they're looking to cut. We are not where you cut. We're the mm -hmm. flush. You don't cut into the flush. And uh, beyond this diabetes program that you mentioned that's at risk, what other programs, what other services what concerns you most, Stacy, right now about the possibility of a shutdown? Um, I am very concerned about the special diabetes program for Indians, but in the bigger picture, uh, beyond IHS, obviously we're always concerned and want IHS to be thriving and healthy. Our people need that to be the case. But, you know, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Health Resources and Services Administration, your caller who talked about um, nutrition, and yes, that will be impacted by, by the shutdown. 
um, all of these other things that our people rely on that are discretionary will not continue unless there's a continuing resolution to keep them going at current levels. Um, so I just, you know, I'm concerned about us in the aggregate because, you know, as I often say, I'm really, really tired of us winning a race to the bottom and a government shutdown would just expedite that for our health status. Now, uh, some other n- national native organizations, for example, NCAI and uh, the Native American Rights Fund, they both released statements publicly uh, against the shutdown. Um, who else, what else is on the national level? What are some of the other native uh, organizations saying? What's their position overall? What, what's, what's the, the reading you're getting right now with regard to, to policymaker makers and other uh, stakeholders there at the national level with regard to the, the issue of the shutdown that's, uh, that's looming? Um, let me speak about uh, tribes, uh, the tribal organizations first. We, the National Indian Health Board has put together a, um, a, a call to action around this shutdown and the impact that will have on Indian countries, Indian country. And it has been joined by every major national native serving or native uh, government um, representational organization, including the National Congress of American Indians. Um, and there is a fear that there will be um, a significant rescission of Indian Health Service dollars through this budget deal, and that we are all standing in shoulder to shoulder with the message that that is just not that is not acceptable. You cannot balance the budget on the backs of American Indians who have already paid for our health care, paid for everything through our loss of culture, our loss of language, through enduring the boarding schools, through losing our land, our cultures, we've paid. And we are not where the cuts need to happen. We are where protection needs to happen. The Indian Health Service, to be fully funded, would be a $51.4 billion annually program. We experience a quarter of that. There's nowhere to cut. So that's what I'm hearing from my colleagues. So when you mentioned that $51 billion is, is what the, the Indian Health Service really needs, and, and they're not currently even, even funded to that level. I mean, long term, Stacey, what's, what's your concern going forward about the future of, of the Indian Health Service? If, there, if there's just these systemically underfunded issues that, um, that we're facing, regardless of if there's a shutdown or not. Right. Well, that is the concern I think of Indian country in general is this gross chronic underfunding of the Indian health system. And we really strive to make sure Americans, but particularly our first Americans, our brothers and sisters understand and stand on the fact that the trust obligation, the treaty obligations for the health of American Indian Alaska Native people does not begin and end with the Indian Health Service. Everywhere in this federal system that there is an investment in health is a place there should be at least a 10% set aside for American Indian Alaska Native health care needs. Why? You would say, well, we're not 10% of the population. Why would you say we need a 10% set aside? Because in an age when the buzzword everyone is talking about is equity, equity means bringing us to a level that is currently enjoyed by mainstream America. It does not mean 
giving us $1,000, giving them $1,000. We need to make up time. We need to build infrastructure and capacity that has been grossly underfunded, neglected for forever. Um, so our real concern across the board is we agree we need to achieve health equity. We need equity for all Americans. And when it comes to American Indians and Alaska Natives, that means that there's a great gap that needs to be met. And there's infrastructure, there's equipment, there's investment in uh, workforce development into um, hospitals. I'm sorry, can Are, you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, okay, yeah, I'll thank you, Stacey. That's okay. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Uh, I just want to share some information. Our producers have, have been looking this stuff up. And uh, so with regard to the SNAP benefits and how those could be impacted uh, with a shutdown. So the way this works is that uh, Congress right now has to approve 12 different appropriation bills to, to fund the government's operations and various programs. And one of those bills is called the Agriculture Appropriations Bill. And it's the bill that covers uh, the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And uh, what I'm reading here is that SNAP funding will continue as normal into the month of October, even if there is a shutdown. However, if it's an extended shutdown, if it goes long-term, perhaps into two months or three months, that could be impacted. There could be a challenge there with folks accessing SNAP benefits. And then with regard to TANF, um, what I'm reading here on the website, uh, dsh.washington.gov, is that uh, if you receive TANF cash assistance, no impacts to your benefits are anticipated in the event of a federal government shutdown. Now, I don't know exactly what the paper trail is there with regard to how TANF uh, is funded or whether or not that falls directly within the aegis of one of these appropriation bills. But big thanks to our producers for getting on top of that issue and that question. And uh, Stacey, I want to go back to you and ask you, I mean, just overall, even beyond Indian Health Service, how strained is the U.S. healthcare system because of COVID, even though it's been three years, uh, are we still showing just kinks in the armor? Isn't it still weighing overall uh, on the national healthcare system, just that horrendous ordeal that we went through with COVID? I want to just say quickly, SNAP and TANF are both mandatory funding. They're mandatory expenditures, so neither one will be impacted because mandatory funding, just like the Special Diabetes Program for Indians, that means the federal government must pay for that, whether they pass their appropriations bills or not, like Medicaid and Medicare, like the VA. So, I, well, the VA has advanced appropriations, different matter, but TANF and SNAP will not be impacted. Um, so I would say about the overall American healthcare system, I think we have, I think there's something going on that nobody's talking about, or if they're talking about it, I missed it. And that is um, the duress, of that has been put on our healthcare providers from nursing to community health representatives to physicians. Um, the duress of going through that pandemic, going through everything they had to go through to serve our people, our native people, our um, mainstream folks who are not native. The whole healthcare system, frankly, I think is in a moment of grieving 
that really needs to be addressed. I think there should be significant investment in that for American Indian Alaska Native healthcare providers. When we had our national conference in Alaska, um, we had a session on COVID and it was all it was about 200 healthcare providers that work in the ITUs, the Indian Tribal or Urban Health Systems. And they, they were very clear on the fact that they are steps away from leaving being a healthcare provider forever because of what they experienced trying to save lives, trying to keep people alive, having to be the only person in full uh, protective gear, you know, holding the hand of a patient as they make their journey and walk on when their whole families cannot be in the room with them, not one family member. I have a tribal leader, a friend of mine who's the chair of a tribe, who had to stand outside the hospital window and with her family and pray and be with her dad through glass while a healthcare provider held his hand while he made his journey on because of COVID. These things, you know, what happens, what I'm observing is that we go through this incredible duress. We go through this incredible um, chronic crisis that is living, it's embodied in our mind, bodies, and spirits for our healthcare providers. And then as the pandemic lifts, we're all supposed to just sort of be like, well, it's business as usual. Well, guess what? The residual impact on our healthcare providers in the whole country for having gone through what they went through, they need help. They need support. They need to be heard. And, you know, at NHB, we're figuring out ways to create space for that, to create opportunities for healing, to connect um, with community um, resources that will help people heal together. So that's one. Another one is that one of the things that not many folks are talking about is long COVID. Now, this morning, information came out that 8% of Americans are suffering from long COVID. That's 18 million Americans. We don't have the stats on how many of those are our, our folks, but I'll bet it's very, very high. All right. Well, we are out of time. A uh, big thank you to our three guests today, Dr. Matthew Clark, Dr. Rebecca St. Germain, and Stacey Bolin for updates on COVID-19 and the looming federal shutdown. Tune in again tomorrow for a conversation about the Pope's apology to First Nations people in Canada. It's been a year since the declaration, and we're asking the question, is anything different? Hope you'll join us. I'm Sean Spurs. Repatriation is the return of ancestors and stolen culture. The Association on American Indian Affairs and the Citizen Potawatomi Nation host the ninth annual Repatriation Conference on November 7th, 8th, and 9th. The conference provides in-person and virtual expert training about domestic and international repatriation. Learn how to register at indian-affairs.org. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.